Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 268, Another Look at Philippians 2 with Dr. Dustin Smith. Back in Trinity's podcasts number 48 and 49, I looked at two different interpretations of this famous passage in Philippians chapter 2, which is typically read as a description of the process of incarnation by which an eternal divine person becomes also human. I don't think that's what Paul meant. However, the interpretation that I put forward in podcast 49, one championed by the eminent New Testament scholar James Dunn, I always had my doubts about. I've never fully satisfied myself about the interpretation of this passage. In this episode, we're going to look at a different way of interpreting Philippians 2. I do think it's about the Lord Jesus' sacrifices, his humble submission and obedience to God, his laying aside of privileges in his earthly life, not in a pre-human existence. And I'm privileged to have with me to discuss the passage Dr. Dustin Smith, who's done a number of illuminating episodes about Philippians 2 in his Biblical Unitarian podcast. And I'll have links for those episodes on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Dr. Dustin Smith is a theologian and content creator at the ministry Allegiance to the King. He's also the host of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, a weekly show which you can find on iTunes, which attempts to start conversations about the oneness of God and the humanity of Jesus Christ. Dr. Smith is a co-author of a Three Views book on Christology called The Son of God, Three Views on the Identity of Jesus, published in 2015. And in that book, he expounds what he calls a high human Christology. You can also check out my interviews with the three co-authors of that book in podcast episodes 117, 118, and 119. Dr. Smith lives in Georgia with his wife and dog. Dr. Smith, welcome back to the Trinity's podcast. Thanks, Dale, for having me. So the passage we're talking about today is really one of the most disputed passages in the New Testament, and just countless articles and dissertations have been written about this, and it's just a difficult passage. I've done a couple podcast episodes about this before, but I've never completely satisfied my own mind about this passage, like I was really completely following the author's thought in it. And so in this episode, we're going to revisit, and I know that you've done several episodes on this as well in your Biblical Unitarian podcast, which is excellent. Why don't we just start off by reading through the passage in the New Revised Standard Translation, and then I'll explain some of the disputes about it, and we'll go from there. Okay, Philippians 2, we'll just go 1 through 11. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not on your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave, 
being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For many scholars and for for many Christians, they think this is a key text for the idea of incarnation. And other than this in John 1, arguably there isn't any text in the New Testament that sounds like it's about this process of becoming human, going from being merely divine, a divine person, to also being uh, human. So it's, it's beloved for that reason. Another thing people want to get out of this is that Jesus is uh, fully divine, or even that he's just God. And then finally, if they can't get those things, uh, they at least want to get pre-existence out of it. And that's maybe the most plausible. I don't see how you get here that Jesus is God, because he's distinguished from God throughout the entire passage. I don't see how you even get that Jesus is fully divine, which would require being omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, uncreated, eternal, and so on. If you get that out of this passage, it's all packed into the the phrase, the form of God. But a lot of scholars, and I know Dr. Smith agrees with this, are going to say that's an obvious overreading to read that much into the form of God. In my previous podcast episodes, I took a type of reading which has been championed by the leading New Testament scholar James Dunn, specifically starting in his book Christology in the Making. I don't think he came up with this, but he's the most famous uh, proponent of it. And on this reading, this is a case of Adam Christology, and Jesus is being contrasted with Adam. And this oddball word, harpagmas, is interpreted on this reading as trying to grab after or trying to get something that you don't have. And he distinguishes between the form of God, as in Adam was made in God's image and likeness, but Adam tried to grasp after or grab after equality with God because Satan said, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil if you eat of the fruit. And so, whereas Adam tried to obtain equality with God, uh, Christ, the second Adam, did not do that. And this makes sense. We know that Adam Christology is a theme in Paul. It only pops up explicitly in a couple of passages, but it's implicitly assumed in some other passages. But a lot of scholars have raised different kinds of objections, especially lexical objections having to do with word meanings to this type of reading. And I'm not fully convinced that this is the best reading of the passage. So the reading that we're going to explore in just a minute with Dr. Smith is a reading of this passage, which is fully compatible with what you could call biblical Unitarian views. And so is the done reading. You don't have to believe in pre-existence to have this reading of the passage. Now, if you consider not just biblical Unitarian views, but just generally Unitarian Christian views, if you think that Jesus pre-existed his human career, you could just read it that way. You could think that uh, this being in the form of God and the equality with God both refer to his glorious pre-existence by the Father's side. And then he graciously chooses to become incarnate. So, I mean, that is a reading of the passage also, which is consistent with just a general kind of subordinationist Unitarian theology. 
So in a sense, uh, if you're talking about Unitarian theology in the widest sense, there's kind of three choices here. The Trinitarian is locked into at least pre-existence here, and very often they, they want to get the deity of Christ here as well. So Dr. Smith, I want to pass it over to you now, and why don't you accept this Dunn-type reading where you contrast the form of God and equality with God, and then you say that harpagmas should be translated as you know grasping after something that one that one does not already have, as opposed to exploiting something that one already does have? Well, it's a really important question, and the tricky thing with Philippians 2, 5-11, through 11, is that we have so many words that are rare. Sometimes they're only used one or two times mm-hmm. in Scripture, or these are the only occurrences in Paul himself, and that just makes it very, very tricky. We just don't have a lot of other places to go and to see how he uses this language, and so that's part of this problem. On top of that, we have, as you've already mentioned, a variety of people that already approach the passage with a preconceived theological framework, and they tend to read that into the text, as sometimes we are prone to do. I think for me, understanding how to translate our pagmos was really important for me in working through this passage. And I have noticed that a lot of recent commentators have become more and more convinced of the understanding of Harpagmos as something that Christ had, but he didn't exploit, as opposed to something he didn't have and he tried to grasp after. I think what helps me understand Harpagmos is looking at the letter of Philippians as a whole and seeing that there's a wider framework of ethical examples in that the Christ hymn here in 2, 5 through 11 is just the first part of this threefold ethical structure, because what we see in chapter 3, verses 4 through 11, is that Paul starts to talk about his privileges. He starts talking about what it means to be a Jew and all of his Jewish privileges, uh, circumcision, being born of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, Uh, Pharisee, righteousness according to the law, being found blameless. And then he talks about how he doesn't use those to his own advantage, and he empties himself in order to be conformed to Christ and to be conformed to his death. And so it's interesting there that Paul, who seems to be taking the example of Jesus, is also identifying his privileges, but not grasping after something else, but refusing to exploit those privileges, being willing to empty himself. And he describes all of those privileges as dung, If that's not a way of emptying, I don't know what is. And he ultimately ends by conforming to Jesus' death, which is the low point of the Christ hymn. And then he says that he hopes to obtain to the resurrection, which was the high point of the Christ hymn. And then the third part of the threefold ethical structure is at the end of chapter 3, where he tells the Philippians in 3.15 through 21 to follow in my example. But he starts off by saying, have this attitude among yourselves, which was also what was said in 2.5, where he says to the Philippians, had this attitude among yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he talks about how Mm. they need to be giving up their privileges. And part of the issue with the Philippians is that they were using their citizenship with Rome as privileges that they needed to dump because he says in 3.20 that actually your citizenship is in heaven from which you await the Savior and the Lord. Of course, Jesus was exalted to be the Savior and the Lord. And that threefold ethical structure where it seems that Paul is clearly talking about his privileges, he doesn't exploit them, he empties them, hoping to conform to Jesus' death in hopes of the resurrection. We have the Philippians who are told to also follow in Paul's example, empty their privileges to 
seek the resurrection to be conformed to Jesus' glorious body. And then I can see, okay, well, if they're doing this in relationship to Jesus, then that also helps me to understand Arpagmos as something that Jesus possessed that he didn't exploit, as a lot of these modern commentators are suggesting. And a lot of translations, too. The uh, New Revised Standard Version, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, N.T. Wright's translation, and a variety of modern commentaries are making that same point. That's really interesting. So your point is that the ethical context of chapter two continues into chapter three. You know, when you're interpreting any piece of writing, context is king, and you're saying, let's not forget the rest of the book and this ethical concern of laying aside privileges that you have continues. And there's another example of it in this book. That's really interesting. That's helpful. That's something I haven't thought of before. Uh, It reminds me of something else, though, that bothers me about how this passage is treated by mainstream scholars. I think they tend to forget the wider context of Paul. They're so entranced with making this an incarnation text, because again, there's very little material to work with as regards the actual process of incarnation. Just looking at the letters of Paul objectively, all the letters attributed to Paul, whether they're disputed or not, there isn't a theme there of transitioning from being divine to also being human. That's not a clear theme there, right? Adam Christology is a clear theme, but this this incarnation transition is not a clear theme. And given that his purpose is clearly ethical here, right? Let this same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. To me, it's weird that he would just throw in this deep, high philosophical, Christological point right in the middle of this practical exhortation. It's also not clear how good of an example this would be, right? You and me have never had to lay aside our eternal heavenly glory to be born as a human. Like, there's nothing in our experience that's similar to that. And so why would he then, I mean, I guess it'd be a heroic kind of sacrifice, but it's not one that we could really identify with. Whereas the interpretation that we're exploring, it turns out that Jesus' sacrifice is going to be during his life on earth. And It's something that we see in the Gospels and we can identify with. There is one passage in Paul that some people would consider a parallel, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He says, For you know the generous act, or literally it's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. I would just point out that there's nothing in that context that sounds like pre-existence or gaining another nature or anything like this. It mentions the man and says that he, obviously it's not talking about literal riches and literal poverty, but he had something like riches that he declined to use. So do you think that that passage throws any light on Philippians 2? I do think so. And it also helps that 2 Corinthians was almost certainly written before Philippians. And so that sort of way of thinking had already been established in Paul's mindset. And that entire section, 2 Corinthians 8 through 9, is this long two-chapter section where Paul spends all his time talking about money and why Mm -hmm. the Corinthians need to be supporting him. And you see, it's the way that he uses the example of Christ there was a way to encourage them and to motivate them to give. Notice to do something tangible in a self-sacrificial act so they can serve other people. Yeah, he's exhorting them to generosity with money. 
Right. But it's something that they could actually understand, they could do, they could mm-hmm. look at the example of Jesus and say, okay, I get this, I can understand this, it's tangible, it's something I can emulate, it's something I can follow. And I think the same thing we have at the beginning of our Philippian passage in verses three through five, where he talks about not being selfish, don't have empty conceit, put others before yourself, don't think of yourself too highly, and then to have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he gives them very specific things to do, and they're to have this attitude, and it's the same attitude that Jesus had. And not just Mm -hmm. any Jesus, it was Christ Jesus. It was Mm -hmm. the Christ being the anointed king, and we all know that the anointed king is not a preexistent title. Someone has to be anointed in time, and all four Gospels understand Jesus was anointed at his baptism, and it was Jesus, Jesus' human name. You won't find the name Jesus in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. It's not a preexistent term. And so both of those phrases that are there in Philippians 2.5, Christ Jesus, mm-hmm. imply that it's the human historical Jesus, not the preexistent Logos or the preexistent Son or anything like that. The terminology and just the practical ethical nature of it should point us away from preexistence readings. I think so. That's very determinative for me and my reading. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what does Adam have to do with this passage? If you look at some translations like the NIV in verse six, they translate more faith, they you literally the form of God. They translate that as who uh, is in the very nature of God. Don't you get the deity of Christ right there? Don't, don't you get that Jesus is God just because he has the divine essence? Well, I think a lot of people have rightly criticized the NIV for that. Not just a lot of people, a lot of scholars uh, that particular translation, I think it was done in 1984, if I'm not mistaken, uh, hasn't been persuasive to a lot of people since then, and none of the following translations have reduplicated that particular way of translating it. Most of the time, you're going to see in the form of God, but understanding the form of God, which again is another one of those rare phrases, not only in Paul, but in all of Scripture, has to be understood in context, and the contrast Notice in verses 6 and verse 7 is that it's from the form of God to the form of a servant, not from the form of God to a form of man. I think people just assume that it's Mm. from God to a man, but it's not. It's from the form of God to the form of a servant. And we can understand what it means to be the form of a servant. That means taking upon the attitude of the servant, okay? The servant is not some sort of type of being. Mm -hmm. In classical philosophy, it's not an essence. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. I think that's the point. And so, you know, the typical way of doing interpreting is that you start with the easy things and you work very slowly and cautiously to the more difficult things. If I can grasp what it means to take the form of a servant, then I understand that's an attitude adjustment. Then it seems that taking the form of God also seems to be along the lines of the attitude of God. Now, for me, this is also helpful because I'm not just limiting my search to the Greek noun morphe, 
which is the word for form, form of God, form of a servant in 2.6 and 2.7. But also we can see that some of the wider semantic range of Morphe has some words that Paul uses. And so these often don't get brought up in these conversations, but I think they're very helpful. For mm-hmm. example, Galatians 4.19 uses the equivalent verb morpho Okay, so you can hear the Morphe in there. And there he says, Galatians, by the way, much earlier than Philippians, but he says in 4.19, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed among you. Mm -hmm. And that uses the verb morpho. And what he's not talking about is a change of being that these human beings there in the churches in Galatia should change into a certain type of being, some sort of exalted Mm -hmm. person. It's the attitude of Christ. He wants Christ's attitude to be there. Yeah. And so that's how Paul uses that verb, which is the equivalent to the noun. We also have later in Scripture, in 2 Timothy 3.5, it says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. And there the word form is morphosis, which is a similar noun to morphe. But the form of godliness there, again, is the attitude of godliness. It's not the change of being from God to a man or from an angel to a man. It's the attitude. People have the attitude of godliness, but they have denied its power. And so I think that we have enough room there, especially with the one in Galatians 4.19, to see that Morphe seems to indicate taking upon the attitude of of a servant. And of course, I think that it helps to see the other links that Paul makes in Philippians 2 to not just any sort of servant, but I think he has in mind a very specific servant, which is the Isaianic servant of Isaiah 52 through 53. And I think that you can find two to three discernible connections to that passage in Isaiah 52 through 53 in the Philippian hymn. And so we can see Mm -hmm. uh, how he's making those connections. So that puts on the table Adam Christology and also the suffering servant Christology, on top of all the other things that he's doing with a contrast with Caesar as Lord and the ethics and all sorts of things. So, Dr. Smith, you just made the connection with Adam, but some scholars argue that form of God doesn't mean at all the same thing as icon of God. And they argue that Greek translations don't translate that phrase uh, that Adam was made in God's image and likeness. They don't use morphe to translate that. How do you see a connection with Adam here? Well, I think there's a variety of connections with Adam that you can see. I think that if you look at Adam, starting in like Genesis 1:27, where God created humanity in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. You can see that human beings were made in the image of God, and one of the functions of being made in the image of God was to reflect God to the world, reflecting God's stewardship, his love, and his attitude. And I think that overlaps with Adam's role as an image bearer. Now, I tend to agree. I don't think that Morphe has quite the same meaning as that word icon that's translated there in the Septuagint of Genesis 127. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've searched really hard to see if that connection could actually be made, and I just don't think that a strong enough argument can be made on that. I'm not sure how much that matters, though. I mean, just given that both of them mean a kind of similarity with God— I'm not sure if it matters that that was habitually used to translate that. I mean, he still could press it into service for a similar meaning. Of course, I'm I'm not making a big issue on that, and 
Regardless, I do think the connections with Adam can still be demonstrated throughout the passage. You know, even if we understand Arpagmos as something that Jesus possessed but he didn't exploit, we know that Adam looked at something that he didn't have and he tried to grasp at it. And it's interesting, Morna Hooker, in her commentary on Philippians in the New Interpreter's Bible, says, quote, What Adam desired, Christ was content to forego. And she argues that also seeing Arpagmos as something possessed but not exploited, that there still is an Adam connection there. That Adam desired to have all of these great things, but Christ was content to forego the thing that Adam reached out to grasp after. You could also look at emptying himself, taking the form of the servant and the likeness of humanity. And you can look at something like Genesis 3, 6 through 7, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and the delight to the eyes, the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took of the fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband, and their eyes were opened, and they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loin coverings. And so there's a, definitely a sense that things had changed there. Of course, the, uh, the humbling to the point of death, of course, Adam was told because of his disobedience that you are dust and to dust you shall return. You're going to return to the ground. That's Genesis 3.19. But Jesus, by the way, voluntarily in obedience submitted himself to death, even death on the cross. And of course, at the end, you have the exaltation. God highly exalted him. And you might not look and see this so much in Genesis chapter 1, but Psalm 8 is a major psalm dealing with Adam, where it talks about the creation of Adam. And in Psalm 8, verses 5 through 6, it says, And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So there is the empowerment and the sharing of rule with Adam, the ideal Adam there in uh, Psalm 8. Is that the kind of thing that could be meant by being in the form of God and having equality with God? I'm just citing these things as references to the Adam Christology point. Just mm-hmm. kind of going down and, and mm-hmm. making my list there, because I, I think the Adam Christology thing is something that uh, is more widely spread throughout the entire passage, and not just on that one particular section there in 2 verse 6. Mm-hmm. I would end with the fact in 2.10, where it says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And you have that threefold understanding of heaven, earth, and under the earth. And then you have in Genesis 1.26 that Adam was told to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every living thing that moves on the earth. So there you have the heavens and the earth and the things that are under the earth. And the same thing appears also in Psalm 8, where you have God putting all things under the feet of humanity. It talks about the sheep and the oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. So I think the connection with Adam in the Philippian hymn is very strong still, regardless of how we understand Arpagmos or even how you understand Morphe. Let me see if I can paraphrase what you're saying. So you think sort of in the back of Paul's mind, he has Adam he's referring to Adam here. And the contrast is where Adam did possess a kind of godlike authority and position, um, but yet he tried to exploit that by kind of being his own boss, I guess. And then he was, as a consequence, forced into a more slave-like condition and ended up dying, being subject to death. Whereas Christ, who was also godlike in the sense that he had a, an authority from God, a, a unique high position from God, 
He did not take advantage of that, but humbled himself and voluntarily became a slave and voluntarily went to death as an act of obedience. And so then he gets exalted to a greater position than Adam ever had. Is something like that sort of what you see behind the text? Uh, close. I think that it's, it's clear in the Adam story in the early chapters of Genesis that Adam grasped at something that he did not have. And I think that what Paul meant in Philippians is that Jesus, although having something that is understood as the form of God and some sort of functional equality with God, and we need to come back and talk about what a functional equality with God might mean for the human king, and that Jesus uh, didn't regard that functional equality as something to be exploited. So there's a difference there ever so subtly uh, between Christ and Adam, but the way that they go about dying is very different. And of course, the fact that Adam was promised all these things, and Jesus ultimately has attained to those things uh, with his resurrection and exaltation. There is a contrast between Adam and Christ there, even though Adam isn't explicitly mentioned, but I think you've already pointed out that passages like Romans 5, 12 through 21, 1 Corinthians 15 are almost universally understood as Adam Christology passages in Paul. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what does Paul mean here when he says that Jesus was in the form of God and even enjoyed equality with God? So, Dr. Smith, do you take the form of God and equality with God in verse 6 to be kind of saying the same thing in two different ways? I do. I see that the form of God, of course, is juxtaposed with the form of a servant. And so there's the attitude of God and the attitude of the servant. And Jesus did not regard that sort of equality with God as something to be exploited. And so the equality there is related to the way that Paul understands form of God in regard to Christ prior to his uh, emptying himself. If we go to the verse immediately following that, verse 7, looking at the NRSV translation, it looks like it has to do with pre-existence because it says he emptied himself, whatever that means, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And when you say it that way, it sounds like there's a sequence where first he empties himself and then he is born as a human. I take it that having the form of the slave and being born in human likeness are supposed to be the same thing. So why isn't that an assumption of pre-existence by Paul? When Jesus empties himself in 2.7 using the verb kenoo, he's already describing something that the Philippians were supposed to do earlier in 2 and verse 3, where Paul says that they are to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, and he uses the noun there, kinodoxia. And so there's a another connection there that is made between the behavior of the Philippians and something that Jesus did. And so, of course, it's a tangible thing that the Philippians were able to emulate and see. But back to the passage in 
Jesus empties himself, and then there's some further qualifications that describe what that means. Uh, The emptying himself means taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of humanity. And this phrase, being made in the likeness of, if you look in the BDAG lexicon, uh, that particular way doesn't talk about being born. Uh, It's just moving into a different mode of being. It's not a birth-type construct in Greek. Mm. Uh, That's actually pointed out. There's a newer commentary in the Hermeneus series. Actually, it was only published two years ago. Uh, He makes this very point that this is not talking about birth in verse 7. I think that's very helpful. So this looks like the the Christology of the translators may be showing itself a little bit by choosing to say being born. Yes. Well, I I can understand because the verb, you know, may uh, could mean to be born. Mm Mm-hmm but it could also mean to be or to become. It's very flexible, and the BDAG uh, entry for it is quite long and quite variegated. So we have the the contrast of being in the form of God and then being in the form of a servant, emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of humanity, and then in the appearance of human beings. Now, it's interesting here that I'm looking for other parallels in Paul to see what in the world is going on here. I don't think that this is just being made in the likeness of a human, as in the contrast of God, because for Paul, humanity is broken, and humanity is in need of redemption. And so I look at another passage to where we have these particular phrases. And so let's look in Romans 8 and verse 3. Paul says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And so there, it's not just humanity, it's sinful humanity. Jesus identified himself with humanity that was in need of redemption. And in that passage in Romans 8 and verse 3, Paul uses this noun likeness, omioma, and he also uses that same noun in Philippians 2.7, in the likeness of humanity. And so it's interesting that Paul has already made that connection in Romans, depending on when you think Romans and Philippians were written, but... Jesus taking the form of humanity or taking the likeness of humanity is not just becoming a human, it's identifying himself with sinful humanity in need of redemption. And of course, that also brings into account what it means to be the servant and the suffering servant, because Mm -hmm. the suffering servant, according to Isaiah 53 and verse 12, was numbered with the transgressors. He was Mm -hmm. identified with sinful humanity, and that was part of that. And so... To me, that's that's part of the reading that I think that Paul is trying to get his readers to see. Mm-hmm. So he takes on the condition of, you could say, a, quote, normal human, although that means a fallen, you know, slave to sin human, in contrast to, I guess, claiming all of his rights that are due him or something like that as the son of God. Yeah, well, it's, I'm going to leave aside son of God because it's not quite the terminology that he is using there. So I'm just, I'm trying to be very, very careful to limit myself there in the uh, language that Paul is using. So he talks about Jesus in 2.5 as Christ Jesus, that is the anointed King Jesus. And the understanding of a functional equality between God and the human ruler was well understood in Judaism. And I'm going to give seven particular points that can be observed within the Hebrew scriptures. This is in regard to the functional equality with the human Israelite king and God who has installed this particular king. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number one, God shares his name with the human king. Number two, God shares his worship 
with the human king. Number three, God shares his prerogatives with the king. Number four, God shares his rule. Number five, God shares his empowerment. Number six, God shares his throne. And number seven, God shares his titles. And you can see this in a variety of places. Psalm 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 72, Psalm 89, mm-hmm. uh, a variety of places. First Chronicles 29. So this is a well-understood theme within the Hebrew Scriptures. And so to identify Jesus at the very beginning, at the outset, as King Jesus, as Christ Jesus, he was someone that was understood in Scriptures mm-hmm. as the Jewish king. God's anointed, yeah. Mm-hmm who possessed a functional equality with God while clearly being understood as someone who is distinct from God. And Mm -hmm. so it seems to indicate that Jesus possessed all of those prerogatives, privileges. He didn't use them to his own advantage, but he emptied himself from being that privileged king to taking the role of a suffering servant, identifying himself with sinful humanity, and allotting himself with the transgressors, and dying the death of a slave on the cross. Kings don't die on the cross. The cross was a Roman form of execution for the lowliest of, you know, the worst of the worst. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't something that royalty would have to suffer. Yeah, so what I hear you saying, Dr. Smith, is that our obsession with this idea of uh, a metaphysics of two natures in Christ just isn't a biblical concern. It's not something that comes up in the Old Testament. There's a kind of being in the form of God and a, and a kind of, in a sense, equality with God there, but it's functional in terms of, I guess, authority and and position. It doesn't have to do with these two natures. So... And we have to remember that a two natures doctrine about Christ is not a clear Pauline theme. It's not something we should expect. It's something we want to find in the passage if we're trying to use this passage to back up our dogma, but it's not something historically that we should expect to find in Paul. And I like the way you're expounding uh, specifically verse six, because it's just going purely on scriptural themes, not on later interests that are brought back into the passage. So how, again, do you see a connection here with the famous suffering servant passage in Isaiah? Well, we see the clear contrast with being in the form of God is the emptying himself and the taking of the form of the thulos, which can be translated as servant or slave. But there's a lot of other points uh, within the Philippian hymn that Paul uh, seems to be making that uh, seem to very deliberately echo the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 52 through 53. So it's not just 53, it's, it's, uh, it starts in 52 and it kind of works its way into 53. It's one of those places to where the uh, chapter divisions don't actually reflect the actual divisions of a particular passage. So we already talked about how Jesus being in the likeness of humanity, and then Isaiah 53 verse 12 where it says the suffering servant was numbered with the transgressors. We have in Philippians 2.8 that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. And then Isaiah 53 and verse 12 says that he poured out himself to death. And then in Philippians 2.9, God highly exalted him. And then Isaiah 52.13, it says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. So we have very clearly in the Isianic suffering servant passage, those three points, the identifying with sinful transgressing humanity. We have the pouring out of himself to death and the fact that God is going to highly exalt, lift up, 
and prosper this servant. All three of those points seem to be there in Isaiah 52 through 53 and also there in Philippians 2. So I don't think that's mm-hmm. an accident. I think mm-hmm. Paul is very deliberately making those points. Other scholars have seen that as well. So I think that the suffering servant point of the Philippian hymn needs to be discussed as much as we discuss the Adam Christology point. And unfortunately, it's not generally in these discussions. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it's not necessarily the case that there are um, the exact same Greek words, say, in the Septuagint of that suffering servant passage and here in Philippians 2. But it does seem like there's a similar flow of ideas there. And an advantage of this is we all know that that passage was used in earliest Christianity as a way of understanding what happened to Jesus, not only his death, but his resurrection and his exaltation. It's not guesswork to say that the early Christians thought that that was a Christological passage. You know, we don't really have to argue that that's relevant in a sense. So um, maybe, Dr. Smith, we could talk about some things that people tend to read into the last three verses here. Therefore, God also highly exalted him. So your ordinary believer, especially somebody who's exposed to apologetics and maybe a certain type of theological interpretation of this passage, they look at verses 9, 10, and 11, and they say, aha, the name that's above every name, that's, that must be Lord or Yahweh. And so clearly Jesus is divine. And then we have Jesus being worshiped. So clearly Jesus is divine. You can only worship a divine being. You can only worship God himself. So isn't Jesus just here, God himself? So never mind form of God, but in addition to pre-existence, can't we just read off this passage that Jesus is God? What's wrong headed about that way of reading it in your view? Well, it's interesting that all of those things that are taking place, which is the fact that God shares his name with Jesus, uh, God exalts Jesus, and God allows people to worship Jesus, but ultimately to the glory of the Father. Those are all predicated on the fact that Jesus has accomplished all of those things listed in verses 6 mm. through 8. That's why it begins in verse 9, therefore God highly exalted him. Notice Jesus is distinct from God. God is the one that raises and exalts Jesus, mm-hmm. okay? So it's it's not just the resurrection. Like, people tend to just talk about the resurrection of Jesus. It's the resurrection and the exaltation mm-hmm. of Jesus. He was highly exalted, and God has shared his name with Jesus. And because of that, we have in verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. So worship can be given to Jesus because He has been obedient because he's been raised, because he's been exalted by God, and God has shared his name with Jesus. Is that how you read it, Dr. Smith, uh, that he's sharing the name Yahweh, or is it just the title Kurios, uh, Lord, that we see in verse 11? I don't know if there would really be much of a difference between that. Um, I mean, it, it is clear that Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't think that when Paul says Lord, Uh, In other places, when he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he refers to the divine name Yahweh or anything like that. But when he cites here the Isaiah passage, I do think that God is sharing his privileges in a very strong way with Jesus. This is why I think it's very interesting that the highest Christological passages that you find in the Bible are after Jesus' exaltation. It's the passages in Hebrews and the passages in Philippians and Colossians and all those things. They deal with Jesus in this exalted state. Those are the highest ones because God has shared 
all of his privileges with Jesus. So, okay, Jesus can be called certain titles that God has, whether it be God mm-hmm. or Alpha and Omega, no big deal, because God has mm-hmm. given Jesus the name that's above every name, okay? It mm-hmm. doesn't identify the two of them. It's that God has shared this name, okay? But God has shared his name with lots of people. He shared it with Moses. He shared it with uh, some of the angels. He shared it with the Israelite king. So God sharing his name with his duly appointed and authorized representatives is nothing new. It's nothing controversial. And Paul might well have thrown in a qualification here that every knee should bow to Jesus. Well, okay, not every knee, not God's who who put him in that position. Right? Where's that other passage in... Um... Yeah, it's in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, come on, obviously that it's excluded you know, the father who is yeah. making all of these yeah. particular claims. He doesn't have to do that. I think, I think the, the controversial point here is that Philippi, being a Roman colony, that thought that every knee should give allegiance to the Lord, and they knew the Lord being Nero Caesar. Now they're saying every knee is going to bow to Jesus, and that actually includes mm-hmm. Nero Caesar. That would have been the Christological and the anti-imperial point that would have been heard by those readers. And that, that imperial reading needs to also be given a, a fair day in court uh, when reading these particular passages. He tells you which knees uh, right in the next clause, the, those in heaven and on, and on earth and under the earth. So in heaven, I guess, would be angelic beings and earth under the earth would be, I guess, living and dead humans. So that would include even the highest ranking other human, Caesar. Yeah, I think so. And I think on top of the fact that Adam was promised universal dominion over every created thing in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, he was told that um, in Genesis 1 and Psalm 8. And Jesus here is reclaiming that which Adam has, as far as we can tell, lost completely. Adam was told to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every creeping thing on the earth. And the ideal psalm in Psalm 8 was that uh, God has... Uh, shared his crown and his glory with this human being. And it also describes, you know, things that are in the air, things that are on the earth and things that are under the earth. And here Jesus receives authority over all of those things. We can see this, by the way, if we look at the resurrection of Jesus in Matthew 28, 18, where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Mm -hmm. Here we have the same thing. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Notice Jesus didn't possess it. God had to give it to him. And it was because of his resurrection and exaltation that Jesus had that. Mm-hmm. I think the interesting thing here is that if you look at the language that's used in verses 9, 10, and 11, is that it's much higher than what is described in verse 6. It wasn't that Jesus has regained the position that he had in verse 6. No, he has been highly exalted. He is now sharing in God's name. He is now sharing in the worship that was supposed to be given to God. Ultimately, it goes to God the Father, and now this is a universal dominion because he's been highly exalted, he's been resurrected to immortality, he is seated at God's right hand. And this helps us to, by the way, understand a little bit better what verse 6 might have been understood as being form of God, equality with God. It can't mean directly equal with God because the exaltation is much higher in verses 9, 10, and 11. How do you get higher than an actual equality with God. Mm-hmm. Here it's something that it's, I think it's pretty clear that verses 9 and 11 is a much higher status than what Jesus possessed in verse 6. That's why you can't just interpret verse 6 by itself. It has to be understood within the context of the entirety of the Philippian hymn. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, when you say someone has equality with someone else, I mean, that's just a very vague statement. You always have to ask equal in what respect, you know? You know, this guy is equal with Dr. Smith in respect of height. This guy is equal with Dr. Smith in respect of, they're both human beings. This guy's equal with Dr. Smith in respect of they have equal knowledge of Greek or something. You know, it just can mean so many different things. And the reader has to be careful of loading up too many assumptions into it. We need to get our assumptions from the context as best we can. Right. And since I'd already brought up the fact that the Israelite king possessed in Judaism a functional equality with God, I want to read an interesting passage in Zechariah 12, 8 where the prophet is looking forward to the restoration of the Davidic dynasty, he says in Future Hopes that the dynasty of David will be like God. Zechariah 12.8, the dynasty of David will be like God. There you can see a very clear resemblance, hmm. and that's there, again, in the Hebrew Scriptures, very clearly, of the Davidic king and the Davidic dynasty. That's there. There's nothing unusual about understanding that the Israelite or the Jewish king possess these privileges and prerogatives of God while remaining distinct. No one thought that they were absolutely equal in the same sense. No created thing is absolutely equal with its creator. Mm-hmm. The house of David shall be like God, New Revised Standard says. So it could be like God in respect of being everlasting or not being of merely human origin or something like that. Like the angel of the Lord at their head, it says. Yeah, it's um, a little difficult to kind of see what's what's going on completely there. But what we do have is a hope of the restoration of the Davidic house, which is the Davidic dynasty. Looking forward to probably a messianic figure. That messianic restored figure of the Davidic dynasty will be like God. But he's also like God in the sense that a messenger of God is like God, an angel. So it's just interesting how a human being can be described as someone who is like God in the sense that a messenger is like God. And that was a Jewish teaching. That was a theme there within the Hebrew Bible. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Paul's actual main point in this passage, which is an ethical point, Some people, some theologians and interpreters, they would look at the kind of reading that we're giving this passage and they would say, oh, that's just clearly reductionist. It's, uh, or it's, you know, it's making the whole thing kind of unexciting, Christologically speaking, because we're not loading into it this idea of two natures and an eternal preexistence and, you know, sharing the same essence with God. But I mean, the way I look at it, I don't see anything deflationary or sort of uh, unexciting about this reading. I mean, the ethical punch is really strong. Just like Jesus went straight to a horrible death in obedience, we are to sacrifice ourselves for the benefit of the other one in the body of Christ. That's a huge ethical payoff there. You know, the end of the passage 
I think it kind of hints that we, God will exalt us as well. You might go down in flames in your obedience, but you will get your reward, not unlike Jesus, who, of course, got a bigger reward, you know, being made, in a sense, second in command uh, for eternity. But the last three verses here are possibly the clearest justification for the worship of Jesus. It's because God exalted him and gave him this name above every name. And don't worry that you're somehow taking something away from the Father because it's to the glory of God the Father, the same one who raised him. So if you're looking not at metaphysics, but at practical payoff, you have a massive ethical teaching in the first part and a very important point about the current position of Jesus, which affects how believers will relate to Jesus nowadays. So I don't see anything deflationary about this kind of reading, like it makes Christ just a guy or, you know, just a, a helpful teacher or something like that. I think that the connections that Paul himself makes need to be taken very seriously. And if Paul is connecting the example that Jesus has demonstrated to the ethics that he expects his Philippian readers to also emulate, that we need to take that seriously. I've already pointed out that in 2.7, Jesus emptied himself using the verb, and the Philippians were to do nothing of empty conceit using the corresponding noun. Uh, also, uh, Jesus humbled himself using the verb in 2.8, and the Philippians were to have humility of mind in 2 verse 3 using the corresponding noun in Greek. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus became obedient using the noun 2 verse 8, And then right at the very end, after 2 verse 11, we have in verse 12 that Paul expects his Philippians to continue to obey using the corresponding noun. So there's three different connections right there with how Paul expects the Philippians to obey with the example that Jesus already set. I've already pointed out, which I think is absolutely crucial for any sort of reading of this, is to see that the example that Jesus has demonstrated in 2, 5 through 11 is the first of three of the ethical imperatives, the ethical examples that are there in Philippians, the first being Jesus in 2, 5 through 11, the second being Paul in 3, verses 4 through 11, and then the third being of the Philippians. And it's very interesting that Paul telling the Philippians, hey, join in following my example, what would it mean for Gentile Philippians to follow in the example of Paul giving up Jewish privileges. Think about that. They have to think a little bit hard. What does it mean for a Gentile to give up Jewish privileges? Well, we need to give up our own privileges, stop worshiping the emperor, stop thinking about the safety uh, of Rome for those that live out in this Roman colony, put their trust in Christ, look forward to the second coming, understand their citizenship is really in heaven, not in Rome, because it's not from Rome that your Savior and Lord are going to come to rescue you when you're in dire straits. It's from heaven from which the Savior and the Lord, Philippians 3.20, is going to come. And what's he going to do in verse 3.21? He's going to transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. So there we have the glorification, Mm -hmm. just like Jesus. And what does he do? He is going to subject all things to himself. There's a connection there with the way that the Philippians are supposed to obey and how that ultimately ends in their glorification and resurrection with the ending of Philippians 2, where Jesus gets glory. He is the exalted Lord. He subjects all things to himself. There's the glorification, all those things that are there. And they're using a lot of technical words that are only used in those two places And so it's not a particular reading that I have. This is what Paul is saying over and over again. It's hard to kind of make the connections there in English. It's a lot easier to see it there in the Greek text. But I think the argument is very strong 
I think it's it's very persuasive uh, when all the evidence is set on the table, mm-hmm. and we come with a mindset of saying, "I really just want to be honest and understand what Paul is trying to say, uh, and really just go where the evidence points." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, our general theme is that context is king, and you know, I think I may be uh, guilty myself of the same crime as many readers when I said, "Hey, Doctor Smith, let's talk about Philippians two one through 11. I mean, there's another therefore right in verse 12. The passage that follows immediately fits into what you're saying. He says, Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work with you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right? So it's about obedience. Even though he went on this little excursion about the current status of Jesus, which is very important, he's still driving towards this this message of obedience, and he keeps going before he switches the subject again. He says, do all things without murmuring and arguing so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. It is by your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in labor or in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a libation, hmm, what does that sound like? <laughs> Let's not also forget 2.25, we have Epaphroditus, who was a worker, fellow soldier. He was a minister. Yeah. And what did he do in verse 30? He came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in mm. your service to me. And that phrase, he became close to death, is the same phrase that was used to Jesus in 2 verse 8. So there you have Epaphroditus being willing to pour himself out in the service of other people, just like Philippians 2 5 says, and he's another example. It's not, a, it's not as strong as an example as Paul makes, but we could see that this constant theme of using other people to imitate Christ and the pouring out of his life for other people in service, in love, in humility, in obedience is something that he expects them to follow expects him to emulate. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's that's really heavy, and it hits me a lot harder than the normal concerns that people have about this passage. Does it teach two natures? His real point is, is Jesus as our standard and our example, and not as an unattainable you know, example, because Paul and others can pour themselves out similarly. And so, me and you are without excuse if we don't do what he's saying here. So, Dr. Smith, where can we go for more information about this connection with Gentile identity and Roman citizenship and how that relates to this passage and this book? Well, I've done a couple episodes in my podcast, the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, on what I call anti-imperial Christology. Now, you can see this in a variety of Paul's letters like Romans, 1 Thessalonians, but you can also see it quite clearly in Philippians. In episodes 45, 46, and 47, I have anti-imperial Christology in Philippians. There's enough material in there to make up three episodes, and I was actually drawing on a particular dissertation uh, to get all those points. So it's not my own ingenuity or anything. I'm just copying what other smart people have already seen and demonstrated. So uh, that podcast is for free on iTunes, Biblical Unitarian Podcast. You can go check those out uh, right after you're done with this one. Great. Dr. Smith, thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks a lot, Dale. It was a lot of fun. 
This week's thinking music has been the track Hidden Blues by Pitex. That's P-I-T-X. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.